I want to welcome those who are worshiping today, uh, either in our Rejoice service or worshiping by way of live streaming. Uh, we thank you for joining us in worship, and we consider you a part of this community of faith, this family of faith. So, thank you. Someone pointed out recently that I'm encouraging everyone to bring their Bibles and to follow along when we read Scripture, but we always turn out our lights. So, could we uh, turn up our light, house lights? <laughs> <laughs> and then after we read the scripture uh, together, we can turn them back down. You can resume your rest. Uh, <laughs> on page 198 in a pew Bible is our scripture lesson for today. It comes from Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. I'll be reading uh, beginning at a portion of verse 4 and reading through verse 11. Let us listen for the word of God. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet, whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last Sunday we began a series of sermons in which we are focusing together on the topic of prayer. Throughout the season of Lent, we will stay with this topic up through Palm Sunday. But what do we think about prayer? What do we believe about prayer? What do we intend to do about prayer, which is perhaps the most important consideration? What are its problems and its possibilities? Why does prayer matter so much? What is it anyway? And I shared with you last week some of my reasoning for why I think it is so critically important that we talk about this together as individuals and as members of this community of faith. Uh, it really fits well with what we're about as a congregation and a church right now. Because the two primary purposes of Lent from its inception have been one to prepare those who are readying themselves for baptism and for confirmation. To understand what does it mean really to profess faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. To become a member of Christ's church. You need to raise those questions because that's the most significant decision you'll ever make in the course of your life. It matters more than any other decision. And in fact, if you understand what it really means, it's going to shape all of your other major decisions in life. So we are preparing confirmands right now uh, for a life of discipleship and, and membership in the church as well. As I told you last week, we're going to spend a great deal more time talking about discipleship than membership. They ought to be the same, but you and I know that they are not. Every member ought to be a disciple. 
That's what we're interested in doing, growing disciples, not just getting more names on the roll. We don't need more names on the roll. We need more active workers and disciples in the church. So the first function is simply to prepare those who are going to make a commitment to Christ. And the second function of Lent is to challenge those of us who've already made a decision for Christ to examine it fully and spiritually. Are we living up to our obligations and promises? Are we taking discipleship to Jesus Christ as a priority in our lives? Are we committed to communing with God and with one another in the household of faith? How do we hold one another accountable? We had new members join the church. Uh, we have expectations of them. They will have expectations of us. We expect them to worship regularly, to, to, to learn, to grow, to glorify God, to find a means whereby they can serve in the church. You can read in your bulletin the various aspects of the ministry of members. Now, everyone can't do everything, but everyone can do something. So we challenge our new members. We challenge our continuing members to find your ministry so that you are involved in the life of Christ's church as a disciple yourself. So one of the things the church is going to be doing is looking at the roles of the church. Are they accurate? That's one of the things I'm charged with doing as uh, interim pastor. Because whenever you end up calling your new pastor, that person will need to know up front, how many members do we have? Who can participate in the work here? Who's going to give resources? Who's going to be present for Sunday school in worship? Who's going to go on mission trips? Who do I have to work with? If you are hiring a new coach at your university, that coach would ask first off, well, who do I have there already? that can make this team go. So we will be examining our roles with two purposes in mind. To re-engage those persons who have perhaps slipped away from active discipleship either unintentionally or intentionally. To see if we can re-engage them in the work we have to do together. Or if they don't intend to be active disciples, then just be honest about removing the names from the role. That's a difficult thing always to do. But if you take membership and discipleship seriously, you have to do it. The book of order of the church not, doesn't even carry a list of inactive members. We used to move, move people to the inactive role of a church. But now we don't even have an inactive list. You're either an active member or you're not a member. So it makes the decision pretty clear. So it's a time for each of us to examine our own membership. The new minister will be told that you're coming to a church of... Nearly 3,000 members, but you're also coming to a church where about a third of those members, close to 1,000, haven't been present for worship in two years, so far as we know. If they were here, they didn't sign the book. They haven't given financially to the church in two years. They haven't taken a class together. They haven't been engaged in any of the wonderful work the church does in the community together. So we have to look at that and say... And ask, do you want to come back? Do you want to be an active member of this church? Now, what can we do to encourage those people to take seriously their discipleship and their membership in the church? The only corrective I know for this is to challenge each and every one of us to look at our own life in light of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us on the cross, which we focus on in Lent. What does it mean to be in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And this is where prayer comes in. As far as I am concerned, at the heart of this personal relationship 
is the time we intentionally spend with our God in communion and in prayer. And apart from this kind of communion and friendship, our faith, our discipleship will not be very personal. It may be theoretical, it may be academic, it may be philosophical, but it's not really a personal relationship. And that is why prayer matters so much for anyone who intends to be a disciple or to desires to be an active member of Christ's church. What God wants from us is a relationship. And that starts with prayer. We need to understand what the purpose of prayer is, the first purpose of prayer. And that's what I'm focusing on really today. And I wondered, I spent a lot of time, time ordinarily trying to think, what do I want to entitle a sermon? I really like to use unusual titles to make people curious as to what's going to be said. But uh, I didn't know what I was going to entitle this particular portion of our study on prayer. When my wife handed me a magnet that apparently has been on our refrigerator for many years hiding there among the grocery lists and the invitations and the photos of grandchildren and that kind of thing. I didn't even know it was there. But she gave me this magnet, and she said, you may want to take that to work. You can put it uh, somewhere on a filing cabinet or something. It'll stick there as well as on the refrigerator. And the, the message on the magnet said, the first purpose of prayer is to know God. And I thought, that's a title. That's what I really want to say. In the sermon here, the first purpose of prayer is simply to know God. I've become fully persuaded of the truth of this. And yet I'm also convinced that probably most people outside of the church, any church, and many people inside the church have overlooked this profound truth. And with nonchalance and apathy, we often regard this subject of prayer. I wonder if you would agree with me that the primary purpose, the first purpose of prayer is simply to know God better and more intimately. Our Old Testament lesson this morning that Ellie read is one of my favorite where God speaks through Jeremiah and says, let not the mighty man boast in his might or the wise man boast in his wisdom or the wealthy man to boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the God who practices steadfast love and justice in all the earth. And later, in the New Testament, Paul says much the same thing. He is bragging about his relationship, his heritage, what he's done for God. He's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He was circumcised on the eighth day. No one's more zealous than I am. I was a persecutor of the church. And according to the law, I was actually blameless. Now, that's a high opinion of yourself, yourself, isn't it? Blameless before the law. And then Paul says, but that's my former life. All of this now, I count now as not just loss, but as rubbish. It's actually more graphic than that. I won't tell you from the pulpit what he actually says in the Greek. But it's worse than that. It's rubbish. When compared with the surpassing worth... Of knowing Christ my Savior and being found in Him and knowing the power of His resurrection. To know God is our challenge in life and that is a very personal thing. Now how are you going to be convinced of this? Can I argue you into believing this? No. 
No one can be argued into believing in the reality and the wonder of prayer. This is something that has to be experienced personally. Someone asked lovable old Samuel Johnson one time, uh, is there no argument for prayer? What's the best argument for prayer, he was asked. And he said, there is no argument for prayer. And by that, Johnson was not being flippant. He was not discounting the value of prayer. He's just saying there's no argument for it. That's something you have to experience personally as a person of faith, which Johnson was. He wrote our prayer of confession that we use this morning. So you can see that he was very serious about his faith, about acknowledging his own sin and about his life of prayer and about wanting to live up to what his God expected of him. Regrettably, so many people today in the life of the church fail to understand that this is the first purpose of prayer. And instead, we have childish and immature notions of what prayer is all about. We think prayer is simply a means of, for getting what we want or advising God how to govern the universe. I had a professor in seminary who said, we often treat God as if he were a cosmic bellhop. It is God's purpose just to look after our needs and our wishes and take care of us. And if he does a good job, we'll give him a tip, maybe a tithe even on Sunday. If he doesn't do a good job in looking after us and ours, then maybe we'll do our business elsewhere. Harry Emerson Fosdick used the analogy of or the metaphor of treating God like Santa Claus. When we're young, we go to Santa Claus with all our dreams and wishes, what we want Santa Claus to bring us. Sadly, a lot of people have this kind of image of God when they pray. I'm just going to turn over my list of wants and needs and desires and let him give me what he will. That's a childish approach to prayer. Now, Jesus commends us to be childlike in our prayer, in our trust, in our confidence in him. But there's a vast difference in being childlike and childish. And the Apostle Paul says, when I became an adult, I gave up childish ways. Regrettably, many of us have never gotten beyond this childish approach to the subject of prayer. And we wonder why people give up on prayer. They tried it. They asked for something. They didn't get it. God didn't do what I want. Why bother my time praying? Most of us stopped asking Santa Claus for things years ago, but we still approach God that way, according to Fosdick. That great philosopher theologian, Huckleberry Finn, that uh, Mark Twain created, speaks about prayer one time, and this is what he says. Miss Watson, she took me in the closet and prayed, but nothing come of it. She told me to pray every day, and whatever I asked for, I would get, but it weren't so. I tried it. Once I got a fish line, but no hooks. It weren't any good to me without hooks. I tried for the hooks three or four times, but somehow I couldn't make it work. By and by, one day, I asked Miss Watson to try for me, and she said I was a fool. She never told me why, and I couldn't make it out no way. But I sat down one time in the woods, and I had a long think about it. And I says to myself, if a body can get anything they pray for, why don't Deacon Wynn get back the money he lost on pork? Why can't the widow Douglas get back that silver snuff box that somebody stole? Why can't Miss Watson fat up a bit? No, says, I says to myself, there ain't nothing to it. 
And of course, Huckleberry's right. There ain't nothing to that kind of prayer. If prayer is simply trying to get what we want or telling God how to govern our lives or the universe, there's not much, much to it at all. On the other hand, if prayer is first and foremost about our personal communion with God, our personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then there is a great deal to it indeed. And the person who un understands this purpose of prayer will approach it in a completely different frame of mind and with a different set of expectations. And prayer consequently becomes a sacred privilege, not some kind of burdensome duty, not a way of transacting business with the divine. Listen to how Fosdick expresses this in his classic, The Meaning of Prayer. He writes, prayer is not a burden to be borne, an obligation to be fulfilled, something that is due God and must be paid. Prayer is a privilege, like friendship or family love or laughter or great books or great music or great art. It is one of life's opportunities to be grasped thankfully and used gladly. And the man who misses the deep meanings of prayer has not so much refused an obligation as he has robbed himself of life's supreme privilege, friendship with God. And Philip Yancey, in his book, simply entitled Prayer, and I understand I read a couple of weeks ago that there are more than 180,000 books that have been written about prayer. So it's not that we haven't written about it. There are a lot of things you can read and study, but the main question is not what you know about prayer, but what you're going to do about it. But uh, Yancey, in his book, tells of how some of the great heroes of faith, like Abraham and Moses and David, uh, engaged in these friendships with God. You, could, you couldn't call them anything but a friendship. There are interchanges between these men, in this, this case, these particular men, and their God. And these exchanges, they're honest and sincere. Sometimes they're full of argumentation and angst and anxiety. But these kind of exchanges occur when two friends are together. They can be honest and genuine and forthright. And that is what our prayer needs as well. Even when this exchange is between a holy and omnipotent and omniscient being and flawed sinners like you and me. And Jesus himself fleshes out this kind of relationship in his own life of prayer. And he went so far as to call his followers, not his servants. A servant don't, doesn't know what his master's doing. A servant isn't involved in the business, if you will. He doesn't call them servants, not his followers. He calls them his friends because a friend knows what the friend is doing. Their shared knowledge, their shared devotion. Sometimes we don't fully appreciate the radical changes Jesus brought about with respect to prayer, among other things. Changes in respect to our approach to God and how do we find God and communicate with God. Because in Jesus' day, the majority of Jews believed that God was present in the temple. So you had to go to the temple to pray. And that's where your prayers were more effective. And he's having a conversation with the woman at the well one time. Do you remember that? And she's saying, oh no, we worship on Mount Gerizim. This is where the Samaritans worship. And Jesus says to her as a part of that conversation, it doesn't really matter. The time is coming. In fact, it already is here 
when we worship in spirit and in truth. God is present not just in these buildings made by human hands, wherever they may be, but God is present primarily in the temple of the heart. Is he present there for you? Do you commune with him there? Is he in your mind and heart and in your life? Prayer doesn't require a particular place. It doesn't require a particular posture. It doesn't require a person through whom you can pray or to whom you pray. All that it requires is intimacy with God. A genuine desire to pursue and to practice the presence of God in your life and that relationship with the divine. Of course, we all remember those many instances in the Old Testament where God does miraculous things, and it almost seems on occasion that prayer is a prelude to a miracle. Now, I believe personally that miracles still occur, but I also believe that God ordinarily acts through the laws of nature that he himself has established. But we find in Scripture that people pray, and then rivers are stopped flowing, and enemies are defeated, and diseases are done away with and even death is defied people are raised from the dead but that's not the primary purpose to get some miracle in our life the primary purpose of our prayer is for it to be an avenue through which we enter into a more intimate relationship with the God we claim to worship with the God whose son died upon that cross for each of us individually and just look at the kind of way that Jesus relates to his heavenly father. Calling him father, first of all, 170 times in the New Testament. Jesus refers to God as a father, an intimate, personal way of addressing him. Thus prayer is more about our intimacy with God than it is about anything else. It's not about getting what we want in life. God knows best about that anyway. And he wants to, to hear from us. We'll talk about that in a future week as well. But what God really desires from us is our friendship, our fellowship. As parents, we understand that, don't we? That's what we want more than anything. Just the friendship and the fellowship with our child. I guess nothing has so transformed my understanding of God as becoming a parent. When you think of God... Relating to us as his children the same way we want to relate to our own children. So prayer is not about getting the things we want in life. It's not about advising God what to do in the governance of the universe. And that way, if we recognize its purpose, our relationship is likely to be much more intimate. Our discipleship is going to be much more dynamic and vital in our own lives prayer is about this relationship and apart from it there can be little relationship and ineffective discipleship in Port Hope Canada there stands a monument to a man that immigrated there from Ireland he was born in 1820 uh, he fell in love with a girl in Ireland and they intended to get married they were engaged and the day before they were to marry she drowned in an accident but he decided to go ahead and immigrate to Canada anyway. And after he arrived there in this little place of Port Hope, he fell in love once again. And for a second time, 
his fiancee died. She became ill with an, uh, I don't remember the reading about the nature of the illness, but anyway, she died shortly before they were to marry. So this man, Joseph Scriven, knew much about heartache and loneliness and trials and struggles in life. No one knew that he had a poetic bone in his body. He spent his life in that little town helping people that couldn't afford to pay him back. He helped them with his friendship, with his work, with his resources. And he was dying from an extended illness and one of his friends was sitting beside the deathbed when he opened a drawer and read a poem that Scriven had written one day and had sent to his ailing mother back in Ireland. And this is what he wrote. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. What needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged, but take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do your friends despise, forsake you? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield you and you'll find a solace there. Blessed Savior, thou hast promised thou wilt all our burdens bear. May we ever, Lord, be bringing all to thee in earnest prayer. Soon in glory bright, unclouded, there will be no need for prayer. Rapture, praise, and endless worship will be our sweet portion there. Let us pray. Eternal God, while we will never understand you fully, help us to know you truly. And may our life of prayer enable us to commune with you as friend to friend, finding in this friendship our peace, our strength, our hope, and our life. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.